Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Those words are the last line of the 1916 infamous poem by Robert Frost, entitled The Road Not Taken. Frost is not the only poet in human history to have summarized all of life as two roads. Today we come to the conclusion of our Summer of Psalms series. We end at the beginning. In Psalm 1, there's a choice to make. You and I could either venture down the way of the wise or we could travel the way of the wicked. The choice is up to you. But I, I've chosen the one less traveled by. And my advice is that it's made all of the difference. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it to Psalm 1. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of the public reading of God's holy word. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight's in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our passage begins with the word blessed. It can also be rendered happy. In the Hebrew language, it is plural, which communicates this is supreme happiness. There is a way for you to have Sublime, supreme happiness. Now, that's good news, especially in our culture, because woven into the fabric of some of our founding documents, our forefathers declared that we have certain inalienable rights endowed upon us by our Creator, among them, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everybody wants to be happy. And this morning I'm telling you there is a way for you to have sublime, supreme happiness. The author begins. He says the blessed man, the happy man, the wise man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. In his paraphrased translation of the Bible, Eugene Peterson simply renders those phrases in this way. You do not go to sin saloon. You don't sleep down dead-end road. You don't attend smart mouth college. I want you to take note of the verbs that the Hebrew author uses. Walk, stand, sit. Do you notice the paralyzing effect? of these verbs. 
At first, the individual is walking in the counsel of the wicked. He's got his strut. He's got his stride. He is moving along. He is walking in the counsel of the wicked. But then something happens that causes him to stop dead in his tracks. And he's standing in the way of sinners. Immovable, in fact. He used to be able to walk in and walk out, but now he is standing and stuck. But then that gives way. For he finds himself seated, fully immersed in his situation, fully entrenched in his circumstance. He was walking, then he came to a dead stop standing, and then he finds himself seated in the seat of mockers. Such is the downward spiral of sin, isn't it? A person who walks with the wrong counsel, who stands with wrong companions and ultimately is seated with the wrong crowd. It's the college student who's gained the counsel, the advice that it's all right for me to go to the frat party on Friday night. Nothing wrong with that. And eventually that gives way to this conclusion. Not only can I go to the frat party on Friday night, but there's nothing wrong with me enjoying a few drinks, alcohol, whiskey, vodka with some of my good friends. And then eventually it becomes a situation where the college student not only goes to the frat party on Friday night to consume some alcohol with his friends, but then he begins to look for a frat party every Friday night and every Saturday night in order to be wasted throughout the weekend. It's the downward spiral of sin. It's the young lady who comes and talks to you, and at first she has doubts about the claims of Christianity, and you advise her to doubt her doubts. That's pretty good advice. But then the second time she comes and speaks to you, she wants to debate you about the claims of Christ. And then the third conversation, she comes not to doubt or to debate, but to defiantly refute the claims of Christ. It's the downward spiral of sin. It's the man who gets caught up in the occasional glance at pornography, but when that's not sufficient, when he begins to want to act out on what he's watching, then he offers some flirtatious advances to his assistant in the office, and that's welcomed by her. And then eventually, it's an all-out affair with a co-worker. Such is the downward spiral of sin. It paralyzes us. I can tell you that the person who inevitably finds himself or herself seated in the seat of mockers never intended to start out that way. They started just walking in the counsel of the wicked. They always thought, I walk to it, I can walk away from it. Not a big deal. Yet the moment they want to walk away from it, if that day ever comes, they realize I'm no longer walking and I'm no longer stopped dead in my tracks, but now I'm seated, immersed in my sinful situation. Oh, the case could be made that this is exactly what happened to Lot. This quicksand of sin. Lot's story is told for us, beginning in Genesis chapter 13 and following. We are told that Lot began to look at the city of Sodom. That cesspool of sensual immorality. And then later we read that Lot set up his tent near Sodom. 
By the time we get to Genesis 19, that infamous story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we bump into Lot and he is seated at the city gate in the city of Sodom as an elder, a leading businessman in that community. He went from looking at the city to then setting up his tent close to the city to then taking up permanent residence within the city. It is the downward spiral of sin. What's rather sobering is that the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 2 that Lot was a righteous man. He calls Lot righteous not once or twice, but three times. The sobering reality is this. If that can happen to the righteous man named Lot, could that happen to you? Could that happen to me? The paralyzing effect of sin. The downward spiral of the way of the wicked. I'm reminded in this moment of Paul's words in Romans 1 that God gave them over to their sin. God gave them over to the lust of their eyes. God gave them over to their sensual cravings. God gave them over to a depraved mind. That phrase, gave them over, literally means to take your hands off and to take a step back. My friend, the last thing you want is for God to take his hand off of you and take a step back from you. But eventually, if we persist and we find ourselves defiantly seated in the seat of mockers, eventually God will take his hand off and take a step back and give us over to our sin. That's the way of the wicked. But the way of the wise, it's not like that, the psalmist says. For he delights himself in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. What a graphic depiction that the one who travels the way of wisdom, the one who is the wise, blessed, happy individual, he or she is a person who delights in the law of God. That word delight means to take pleasure in. It means to desire. You and I would call it passion. You show me somebody who loves to read the word of God and memorize the verses and understand the scripture and live it out in obedience. And I'll show you somebody who delights in the law of God. You show me somebody who just loves to learn and know more about not only the word of God, but also the God of the word. I'll show you somebody who delights in the word of God. It's John R.W. Stott who says the mere fact that this wise individual delights in the law of God is evidence of transformation. It's evidence of rebirth. For in Romans, Paul reminds us that the sinful mind is hostile toward God. But only the mind that's been redeemed, only the mind that has been um, uh, awakened, only that mind can then delight in the law and the word of God. The mere fact that you delight in God's word is evidence that you, my friend, have been reborn by the power of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great time for us to talk about our three questions that we always ask each other. What, where, who? These are questions of individuals who delight themselves in the Lord. Since a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ, what are you learning? 
Since we are on mission with the Lord, where are you taking the gospel? Across the street or across the world? And who are you trying to reach? And if some specific person doesn't come to your mind in less than three seconds, then you, my friend, are not being intentional enough. Only people who delight themselves in the Lord ask these questions and answer these questions. The psalmist says, blessed is the person, happy is the one who delights himself in the word of God. For he meditates on that law both day and night. St. Augustine said day and night is a mirrorism. It communicates that in the good times and in the bad times, the wise, happy, blessed person delights in God and his word. There's never a bad time to go to God's word. In the good times when things are going well, in the bad times when life is turning upside down, inside out, at all time, you can go into the Lord and to his word. And you delight yourself. You meditate on that word both day and night. Now, when you hear the word meditate, I know you think of some Near Eastern mysticism, getting to nirvana, uh, going to your happy place in your mind. That has nothing to do with what the psalmist is talking about. In fact, the word meditate means to murmur, means to, to mutter. You and I have to remember that you having your own personal copy of the Word of God is a relatively recent phenomenon. I know it's hard for us to think about this because we think that, you know, time began like when we were born, right? We think that time began, you know, uh, so many years ago. But actually, time's been going on for a long time. And really, people having their own copy of the Word of God, it really got jump-started a little more than 500 years ago with the invention of the printing press, it was with the invention of the printing press that the copies of the Bible became more accessible and more economical. Before that, there were scrolls, but very few people had scrolls because they had to be meticulously handwritten. They were very expensive and very scarce. Only the rich and famous could have a copy of the scroll, and really only the rich and famous were the only ones who could read the scrolls because most people could not read. But with the invention of the printing press, it, it, it meant that the Bible was much more accessible to people and reading became paramount. What did people do before they had the Word of God in their hands? What, what did they do? How did they commit that into their life? They meditated. They murmured. It wasn't uncommon to watch people, find people, see people as they would walk up and down the streets and look as if they're talking to themselves because the word meditate, murmur, it literally means to speak to oneself under one's breath. And the only way that you can get God's word into your life, if you don't have a hard copy, if you don't have a copy of the Bible in your hand, the only way to do that is by memorization. In order to memorize something, it takes repetition. And so it wasn't uncommon for people to walk around the house, to walk around the streets, and they are murmuring, they are muttering, they are speaking to themselves under their breath, all the while they're meditating on God's word. Think about this psalm. This psalm was written at least 3,000 years ago. It's written at least 3,000 years ago. So how did people commit this scripture into their life? They meditated. It's not Near Eastern mysticism. It's not some seance. No, meditation is simply repetition. It is repeating the word until it's memorized in your memory bank, until it's lodged and furrowed into your spirit. When you stop and realize that, it does beg the question, doesn't it? 
that if somehow your copy of God's word, if it was taken from you, if it was stolen from you, if you did not have this book, how much of God's word would you have in your mind and heart? Ted Sisk was a great pastor. He pastored for some 25 years the infamous Emmanuel Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky. He was Jane Ellen's pastor. He was the minister that married us. He is the man that set me on the course of Beeson Divinity School. I give him a great deal of credit that had it not been for Ted Sisk, I don't think I would have gone to Beeson Divinity School. Had I not gone to Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama at Stanford University, I don't know if I would be standing here today. I give him a great deal of credit for urging me to at least investigate Beeson Divinity School. He is a great, great man of God. Late in life, long after retirement, he suffered from macular degeneration. It robbed him of his eyesight. One of his grown sons named Paul told me this story. Paul was visiting mom and dad. It was early in the morning, and all of a sudden, he heard his father just mumbling. He rushed to the room where his dad was. He found his father seated in a chair, staring at a wall in a pitch-black room. No light whatsoever in that space. Dad? Are you okay? Yes, son, came the reply. Well, Dad, what are you doing? And that wise old sage of a pastor responded with these words, and I quote, Son, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm reading my Bible. <laughs> if you did not have a copy of God's word, how much of God's word would be in your mind and in your heart. How much of the word of God would be in you? This really does beg the question because the psalmist says that the one who delights in the Lord meditates on the word of God, the law of God, both day and night. So it begs the question, how much time do you give to murmuring the scriptures? How much time do you give to studying the sacred book? How much time do you give to giving yourself to this very word of God? Let's ask it in this way. Which do you spend more time doing, watching Netflix or reading the Bible? Which is the greatest number? The number of Facebook friends and Instagram followers you have or the number of verses you have memorized? Which did you give more time to this past summer? Researching your favorite vacation spot with all the restaurants and the attractions for you and your family? Or researching some of your favorite passages of Scripture so you could understand God's Word better? Which is it? The psalmist says that the one who delights in the Lord, the one who meditates on that law both day and night, like a tree planted by streams of water. Listen to this strong imagery. It is a tree that bears fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. I gotta be honest with you, I really think that the 
Prosperity gospel folks have hijacked this verse. Prosperity gospel folks, those individuals who say, if you have enough faith, then you'll have unlimited health and unlimited wealth. They go to a place like Psalm 1, for whatever he does prospers. See, if you believe in God, you will prosper. Whatever you want, whatever you do, it will be prosperous for you. The problem is, is that nowhere in the Bible does it teach that if you have enough faith, you'll have health and wealth. And especially this verse does not teach that. If that theology were true, then God the Father would owe God the Son a huge apology because Jesus died both young and poor. So let's think about the analogy. The psalmist is saying that the one who delights in the Lord is like a prosperous tree. Let me ask you a question. How do you know if an apple tree is prosperous? The answer, it produces apples and a lot of them. Let me ask you another question. Are the apples produced for the tree to consume? And the answer is no. The apples are produced for others. So using that analogy, what does it look like for a man of God or a woman of God to be prosperous? It looks like that you are producing a great deal of fruit. And who deserves that fruit? Who do you produce that fruit for? It is not for yourself. It is for others. And the Bible is not dark. It is not silent when it comes to the fruit that you and I are to produce. There are several places in scripture where it talks about fruit. I know this list I'm about to give you is not exhaustive, but it at least uh, qualifies these different areas. For the scripture says that some fruit are the individuals that you've helped one to the Lord. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter one. It's the converts, it's the disciples that are made. Now, of course, disciples are made by the spirit of God, by the power of God, through the word of God, but he uses you to proclaim his word. So how many people, how much fruit have you produced by the individuals, by the people that have been converted unto the Lord? That's one example of fruit in the scripture. The other is your own personal godly character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's given for us in Galatians chapter 5. Some fruit is money. But let me be very careful when I say that the money that is regarded as fruit is the money that you give for the work of the Lord, for the advancement of his kingdom. The work, the money that you give for his work, that's regarded as fruit according to Romans 15. Hebrews chapter 13 says, that the praise on your lips is fruit unto the Lord. Now, there's probably more examples, but those are just four. Four examples of what it looks like to, to produce fruit. And so the prosperous individual, the blessed individual, the wise man, the, the happy woman is the person who delights in the law of God. Upon that law, he or she meditates. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. They produce an abundant amount of fruit and they are prosperous. And the fruit they produce is for the good and glory of God. This is the good life. This is the wise way unto the Lord. But not so the wicked. Psalmist says, they are like chaff. What's chaff, you ask? Well, chaff is the useless, inedible parts of the grain. 
The Palestinian farmer would build a threshing floor. That threshing floor would be located on a hillside. Usually he would position that threshing floor so that the wind could blow through because whenever there was a a pile of grain, the farmer would take a, a pitchfork type tool called a winnowing fork. And with that winnowing fork, he would stick it into the grain and hoist it into the air and throw it into the air. And the chaff, the light, the useless, the inedible parts of the stalk, it would just kind of drift away. But the heavier good grain would fall to the threshing floor. And the farmer would gather that good grain and put it in his barn. He would then bundle the chaff and burn it. Why? Because it's useless. It's of no good to anybody. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 says Jesus has come with the winnowing fork in his hand. Jesus has come to clear the threshing floor. Jesus has come to separate the wheat from the weeds, the grain from the stalk, the wise from the wicked. And what's Jesus going to do with the chaff? He'll bundle it and throw it into the fire. It's not by accident that uh, Jesus called hell Gehenna. Gehenna was the trash dump. It was the inferno. It was a place where all the junk and the trash was thrown. He said, that's hell. It's a place of constant burning. It's a place where the useless stuff is thrown. That's where the chaff will be. The psalmist says, the wicked will not withstand the judgment. They won't be able to stand up against it. And in God's sacred assembly of the kingdom of God, there will not be an intermingling of the righteous and the chaff. There won't be an intermingling of the wise and the wicked. I gotta be honest with you, it's rather novel, actually quite refreshing, that God categorizes everyone in one of two camps. There is no middle ground with God. Absolutely no middle ground. Now that's refreshing because you and I live in a culture, in a society of countless categories. We live in a society of dogmatic demographics. We live in a culture where there are numerous politically correct distinctions. We decipher people and put them in categories based on their age and their gender and their employment or lack thereof. It's based on how they vote. It's based on how they, va- how they uh, have vacations, what teams they pull for, all types of things that help to categorize who we are. In the scripture, you're either in one of two camps. For God, there is no middle ground. You're either sheep or goats, wheat or weeds, Children of light or children of darkness? The righteous or the reprobate? Wise or wicked? You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. There is no middle ground. Now this becomes even more humbling when we put a face to it. Uncle Joe is a great guy. Most families have an Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe is a good old boy. He will give you the shirt off his back 
He loves his nieces and nephews. He's always at family functions. He's a hard worker. He does everything that anyone ever asks of him. If you need a thing, just call Uncle Joe. He'll be there lickety-split. Uncle Joe doesn't drink, smoke, or chew, and he doesn't date women who do. He's a pretty good guy. But at Thanksgiving... Uncle Joe doesn't enter into the religious conversations around the table. Oh, he's more concerned with football and turkey and dressing. If he ever does enter into the religious conversation, he will acknowledge, I never go to church, but you don't have to go to church in order to be saved. To which I would tell Uncle Joe, you're right, going to church doesn't save you. But for the life of me, I can't figure out why the saved would not want to go to church. Uncle Joe rarely enters into the religious conversations. You know what you and I call Uncle Joe? We call him a good guy. He's a good old boy. You know what the Bible calls him? Wicked. Sally. She works at your office. Oh, she's kind, she's polite. She always has a smile on her face. She greets everyone the same way. She's helpful. She's honest. She wouldn't steal a thing. But when it comes to religious conversations, she'll tell you she's not a Christian. She's not a Jew. She's not a Muslim. She's really not anything. If you hard press her, she may be agnostic. There may be a God, but I don't know if he can ever really be known. I don't know if he ever really exists. Everybody around the office, they just call her Sweet Sally. She's sweet. She's kind. She's nice. You know what the Bible calls her? Wicked. You say, wait a minute. I mean, the wicked people, those are the terrorists and the rapists and the murderers and the embezzlers and the adulterers. Those are the wicked people. Yeah, you're right. Those are wicked individuals. And so is Uncle Joe and so is Sweet Sally. Because there's no middle ground. When it comes to God, either you're wise or wicked, either you're in Christ or you're outside of Christ. Listen to the promise that God gives in the very last verse. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord watches over. That means he guards, he keeps, he preserves. He, he watches over the righteous. But the way of the wicked will have eternal condemnation. They will perish just like chaff is burned in the fire. You walk away from Psalm 1, and if you're not careful, you can walk away with nothing more than a moralistic message. It was Alistair Begg in his sermon on Psalm 1 who said, uh, you can walk away from this opening psalm and you can tell yourself, well, if I do this, this, and that, I'll be a goodie. And if I do that, that, and this, I'll be a baddie. And nobody wants to be a baddie and everybody wants to be a goodie. So I want you to leave today determined to be a goodie. You think to yourself, well, that sounds pretty good. I mean, I want to be a goodie. I want to be good in the eyes of the Lord. So if I do A, B, and C, this, this, and that, I'll be a goodie. But we all know the man who walks out the door and says, what was that all about? Because you know the man. 
He says to himself, I know I'm not a goodie. I know I'm a baddie. And if I ever feel like I'm a goodie, then my spouse quickly reminds me in no uncertain terms that I am a baddie, not a goodie. So I guess there's no hope. There's no point in this Christianity thing. So Alistair Begg says that Psalm 1 is like the wave at a football stadium. You've been there, haven't you? You've seen the wave. Oh, it starts over there and it kind of sheepishly makes its way towards you and you think to yourself, oh, brother, here it comes again. But by the third pass, you begin to anticipate this thing, don't you? I mean, you begin to watch it. And when it comes close to you, for some reason, you enter in. You jump up. Woo! And then you watch and wait for it to come back again. And you think to yourself, why in the world am I doing this? The answer, because somebody started the wave. This psalm is about the person that started it all. Let me ask you. Do you really know anybody who has never walked in the counsel of the wicked? Do you know anybody who's never stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of mockers? Do you know anybody who truly delights himself in the word of the Lord and meditates on that word both day and night? Do you know anybody who is a spiritually strong tree whose leaf never withers in any season of life and always produces fruit. I don't know about you. I've met a lot of people who want to be like that. But I only know one person who is like that. Dr. Harry Ironside was in Israel talking about this psalm to a group of Jews and Arabs. Ironside asked the question, who is the psalmist talking about? Is he talking about Abraham in Psalm 1? And the response came back, oh no, this cannot be Abraham. For Abraham lied about the identity of his wife, called her his sister, not his spouse. This cannot be Abraham. Dr. Ironside said, okay, uh, could this be Moses? Is the author of Psalm 1 talking about Moses? No, the reply came. This cannot be Moses, for Moses killed a man in anger. Well, what about David? Could this be a description of David? After all, David is the greatest king in Israel's history. And the response came back, no, this cannot be David, for David committed adultery with that woman named Bathsheba. On top of that, he was a, 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 he accompanied in the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Ironside said, well, could this be Isaiah? He was a great prophet, powerful in word and deed. Oh, yes, came the reply. Isaiah was great, but he was a man of unclean lips, and he lived among a people of unclean lips. So Dr. Ironside said, then who is Psalm 1 talking about? A Jewish rabbi raised his hand. He said, Dr. Ironside, here recently I've came across a little book called the New Testament, and I've read it. And if I believed what the New Testament said, I would have to answer your question in this way. That man can be none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And Dr. Ironside looked at that Jewish rabbi and he said, what you are unsure about, I am convinced of. All of scripture is about Jesus, right? Doesn't it stand to reason that it, when we knock on the door of the 150 Psalms, it is Jesus who's going to open the door and we inevitably bump into him? 
For after all, has Jesus ever walked in the counsel of the wicked? Has Jesus ever stood in the way of sinners? Has Jesus ever sat in the seat of mockers? Has Jesus ever uh, delighted himself in the law of God? And is Jesus the only one who meditates on the law both day and night? And not only did Jesus uh, look like a tree, he was nailed to a tree so that you and I may prosper and never die. Jesus took your place and my place. So our goodness is not based on who we are. It's based on who he is. Our identity in God is not based upon our goodness, but upon his godliness. In his infamous Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus begins with a greater description of this blessed life. He gives eight beatitudes. At the very end, he gives a five-word invitation. Enter through the narrow gate. It is Jesus who also compares all all of life to two roads. On two roads, there are two gates. These two roads with two gates lead to two distinct destinations. And Jesus says that wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many people are on it. But small is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and only a few find it. So Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. This, in Psalm 1, is a description of the only one who can fulfill it. It is Jesus the Christ, and Jesus gives you and me the invitation, the power, and the only capacity for us to go through the wise life to follow him, him as the way for he is the way, the truth, and the life and no man knows the Father except through him this is an invitation for us to enter through the narrow gate so here in Psalm 1 we hear the voice of Jesus do we not? he invites us to come and follow him this morning I, I want you to follow Christ through the streets. And I want you to follow Christ outside the city gate. I want you to follow Christ up that hill called Calvary. I want you to follow Christ to the cross. I want you to follow Christ to that garden tomb. I want you to follow Christ through the empty grave. Wherever he leads, I invite you to go. The hymn writer is exactly right. My heart, my life, my all I bring to him who loves me so. He is my master, Lord and King. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. The blessed man is the one who follows Christ. The blessed woman is the one who follows Christ. The blessed student is the individual who follows Christ. This morning, I'm challenging you to follow hard after the Christ who loves you so. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Today, I want you to be counted as the wise, not the wicked. How do you change lanes? By acknowledging that Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. The way you go from the wicked to the wise is by faith following Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We tried to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. We tried to make it as clear as we possibly can. 
Lord, help us to regard ourselves the way you regard us. If you see us as wise, that must mean that we are in Christ. But this morning, if we find ourselves outside of Christ, you would declare us to be wicked in your sight. On this day, this day, this moment, this hour, will you please snatch the lost from the flames of hell? On this day, in this hour, Will you please bring families back together? On this day, in this hour, will you please help us to change lanes from walking the way of wickedness to walking the way of wisdom? Help us to follow Christ. We give this invitation in Jesus' name. Amen.